0: are at risk of losing the information war. The widespread normalization of disinformation as a political tool is accelerating distrust in democratic institutions and processes. Grey zone warfare is gaining the edge over open pluralistic societies. Russia and China have also proved adept at weaponizing information for their foreign policy objectives. Governments have held off intervening strongly in the online media sphere for fear of wrecking classical liberalism, but at what cost? Silicon Curtain was created to explore issues around propaganda narratives and techniques and the threat they pose to open societies. If you enjoy the material we create then please like and subscribe to help boost the popularity of our videos on YouTube and also do consider becoming a patron or buy me a coffee to support the work we do. Elizabeth Braun is a senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute AEI, where she focuses on defense against emerging national security challenges such as hybrid and gray zone threats. She is also a columnist with foreign policy, where she writes on national security and the globalized economy. Elizabeth was a senior research fellow at Russi, where she led the modern deterrence project. Prior to her current appointment, Elizabeth is also a member of the steering committee of the Aurora Forum, a member of the National Preparedness Commission UK, and an associate fellow at the European Leadership Network. She's also published a wide range uh, in a wide range of publications, including Politico, the Frankfurter Alemannia Zeitung, the Times, the Wall Street Journal, and many others. Elizabeth is also the author of two highly regarded books, and we will, of course, put the links to those as well as her social media profile into the description of the video. Now, Elizabeth, welcome to the channel.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Hopefully that description was was correct, but it's only a tiny, tiny part of the incredible amount of uh, work you've done and organisations you're associated with over the last few years. Uh, Is there anything else you wanted to particularly mention that I've left out?
1: Perhaps that uh, I have another book coming up uh, or coming out, I should say uh, uh, in the new year, early in the new year, uh, about globalization called Goodbye Globalization. And it's with Yale, Yale University Press and it's a general market book rather than, that, and, than an academic one. And uh, I'm particularly excited about that because it's uh, this is a, a subject that concerns everybody. We are all participants in globalization, have been participants in globalization. And now we're all witnessing it uh, crumble left and right.
0: And of course, as a result
1: a, yeah. of its of its collision with geopolitics, I should say.
0: And of course, that's a really fertile area for propaganda narratives and gray zone warfare, isn't it is amplifying the supposed failure of globalization and turning people against their governments and their institutions um Well that's probably a good place to start um, do you see anti-globalization as a fertile arena for gray zone warfare?
1: i think there has been a general um unhappiness with with globalization from the moment it took off in the late 80s and especially early 90s when when people uh started witnessing their jobs um jobs disappearing from their communities or even their own jobs disappearing um and The thing is, Jonathan, they weren't really asked about whether they wanted that. and So it just happened because companies considered it a good idea to put their factories in in countries that were cheaper. And that's, that's a perfectly legitimate commercial decision and it resulted in cheaper consumer goods which is why we have this incredible uh, standard of living that we have today not just in western countries but in in lots of different countries where for example uh, billions of people can afford a mobile phone well remember the early days i mean a mobile phone was th- cost thousands of pounds or dollars And it was something for the absolute elite, then it became cheaper and cheaper to make. And and now we can all have one. And in most cases, people upgrade every couple of years. It really is extraordinary. But uh, the fact that I think, uh, or the reason why people, uh, many people were concerned about globalization the moment it took off, is that they weren't asked whether they wanted this reality. I, I think if politicians had said to, their voters here are two choices do you want a globalized economy that will give you a fantastic standard of living fantastic material convenience cheap consumer goods uh uh with the downside of jobs disappearing manufacturing jobs disappearing from from the local communities do you want that or do you prefer to have uh manufacturing jobs in your local communities and um the downside being that consumer goods will remain uh relatively expensive or more expensive than they would be if we did the manufacturing elsewhere it would be interesting just as a a thought experiment to see what how people would have decided uh had such a question been put to them but it was never put to them it was just it it was a reality that materialized and the people who were inconvenienced or or somehow suffered as a result of globalization uh, understandably felt quite resentful and so that may be Fertile ground for for uh, for disinformation, but I think uh, it it it's probably uh a, a too complicated uh, um an argument to make in a, in a malign influence campaign there are there are even more fertile areas where disinformation malign influence can tap into people's resentment resentments and, and anger which is what has been happening in, in recent years and and one example is of course vaccination hesitancy that's a very easy case to make for, for those wishing to engage in, in malign influence campaigns
0: and of course there are obviously connections I mean, for those who 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 track uh propaganda narratives often you'll find people in those same groups or communities where perhaps vaccination is the gateway but there'll be other topics which seem to reoccur and then if you go right down to the uh, you know the really toxic end you'll you'll have anti-semitic uh and other kind of narratives well before we unpack you know the function and these specific narratives Let's do a definition of terms, because when I spoke to Carl Miller and Peter Pomerantz, they're incredibly specific about the language that is used, especially when you define uh, disinformation, uh, propaganda, hybrid warfare and grain zone warfare. In my mind, there's quite a lot of overlap between these areas. But you're the expert in the field. I'd love to know what your distinctions are between these four sets of terminologies.
1: So gray zone aggression is aggression below the threshold of armed military violence. And that's very easily defined. Uh, Either uh, aggression either uh, includes armed military violence or it does not. Then there is hybrid uh, aggression, which is the combination of armed military violence and gray zone aggression. And that's where there's often a lot of confusion because people will say hybrid when they mean gray zone. But hybrid is two different kinds. By definition, a hybrid car uses uh petrol and it uses um electricity, so uh two different kinds, and hybrid warfare is two different kinds: armed military violence and uh non-armed military violence or or armed military violence and Gray zone aggression, um, and unfortunately, people have used that term so so uh, frequently and and uh, carelessly that that uh, it gets applied to all kinds of things that are not hybrid warfare, uh, and and as a result, I think has lost it, the term has lost its potency. So gray zone aggression, hybrid aggression, disinformation is information that is willfully inaccurate uh, and made willfully inaccurate by the sender. Uh, And then we have malign influence campaigns. That's a a bundle of disinformation put together by by somebody wishing to to harm another country or another group. And of course, misinformation is is accidentally uh, incorrect information, which can be as harmful as disinformation. And, And I wish we would all be more careful about the information we spread so that we don't uh, accidentally spread misinformation.
0: And it would be interesting also to perhaps put a bit of depth behind the conversation, because, of course, you know, if we think of examples, a lot of examples are taken from the last few years, even the last sort of decade. A lot seems to um, come after the invasion of Crimea. But what is the sort of historical analogies to what we're seeing now how far back do we go to start seeing grey zone aggression or what can tangibly be defined as grey zone aggression as part of say either foreign policy or even policy in in wartime would, would the second world war be the sort of period where you can see it emerge
1: uh grey zone aggression is is always part of of any war so you can say that any war is hybrid because it has both grey zone aggression and our military violence and so for example if we look at um, the Trojan horse, the, the act of rolling that horse in with people inside it was uh, gray zone aggression. Then obviously they leapt out and engaged in armed military violence. So then it became uh, a hybrid. But that act itself was gray zone because it didn't look like armed military violence. And in fact, uh, uh, the people inside the horse perceived it as, as an act of, of friendship. So, and that obviously goes back many thousands of years. So that, that's the sort of stretch we talk about. But when we look at gray zone aggression used on its own, um that's relatively new uh not not as a phenomenon because there have has always been propaganda and 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 hostile acts on an occasional basis, but as a concerted campaign against another country, uh grey zone aggression is relatively new. And the reason for that is that the world is so interconnected not least thanks to modern technology and indeed globalization that it's very easy to use gray zone aggression against another country you can exploit all those interconnected areas and and uh, and be very successful in harming another country without using military violence and a good example of that is what uh, russia did just before it invaded ukraine it put all these soldiers at the border uh, they were just at the border, not inside Ukraine, and not using violence. They were just there, and they frightened the the uh, business community. Uh, so uh, investors left Ukraine. If investors left Ukraine, would start pulling their investments out of Ukraine. Uh, the Ukrainian currency slumped. Uh, the the uh, price of insuring against Ukrainian sovereign default rose, and all of that was as a result of, of uh, the Russian soldiers being at the border, but not doing anything. So Ukraine couldn't really say, well, Russia, stop whatever you're doing because you're harming our country. It, it wasn't really doing anything. And that is uh, clever, zone aggression that exploits all these interconnected aspects of, of uh, life in a, in a modern, globalized, interconnected economy.
0: And When we look at that, we also have to consider anecdotes. So as these techniques sort of develop, get rolled out, as we start to see some of the mechanisms by which they're rolled out. And I think it can take many years, can't it, to kind of unpick. So, for example, the insurrection in the Donbass, which superficially uh, is painted as an organic process on the ground ukrainians versus ukrainians etc but as you start to unpick it you to realize there are lots of different strands in there which probably fuse gray zone and hybrid from uh, injecting sort of mafia influence coercing oligarchs all sorts of different techniques probably on the ground before you even you know fire the first shot um russia is clearly a master at this so But as we understand more about the techniques being deployed, are we actively developing antidotes to those? Or is that really tough?
1: It it is really tough because this aggression looks in many ways just like like life in a a daily life in a a modern society. Uh, There will be um, imperfections, there will be disruptions, there will be annoyances, and it's very hard to to define when uh, those activities that that are that are really not uh, that are unhelpful. Uh, it's really hard to define when they reach a point where you have to uh, act against them. And so, even if you, as as Ukraine or any other country, even if you can identify uh, a, a particular country as as perpetrating or being behind those activities, uh, is there anything you can do when when they happen? pretty infrequently, uh, for example, you know, disinformation being spread about, uh, uh, about your country, any aspect of your country, or indeed uh, companies being bought up by a country that wishes you ill, which is what has been happening for a number of years when, uh, when China was buying up cutting edge companies in the West, not necessarily large companies, but companies with cutting edge technology, technology, even though we knew that China was already uh, trying to, um, Outcompete us in unfair ways. Uh, this was still happening, and and then people were saying, "Well, this is just a globalized economy. Companies buy other companies all the time." But when does something reach a level where you you have to intervene against it? And then what is it? What is that intervention? That is the really tricky part because we have to, as as modern open societies, we have we we can't shut out every every annoyance, every every uh, negative thing that can happen to our countries and we turn into uh into different states, but what is the level above which uh uh we can't we can no longer tolerate that activity? And I think that's what countries are are having to figure out now. Uh and, and, and it's a really difficult uh call to make. And is it uh and I've thought a lot about this myself, but and I don't have an answer. Is the level is it when somebody loses their life? Is it when um uh, is it when uh, there is uh, a public uproar against it? What, what is it? We don't know. Whereas with, with military violence, we we know it when we see it, right? And and uh, this, it is aggression, but yet in a diluted form, we have to live with it. But what is, what is the level of concentration where it's no longer acceptable and we have to intervene against it? And then, of course, the second question is how do we intervene against it? Mm. And...
0: The challenge also must be that when people are talking about autocratic regimes when they're talking about you know our natural enemies um and you know states like north korea are mentioned uh russia obviously china they tend to get lumped in together but is it not the case that each of these countries has a slightly different flavor a different technique of gray zone aggression and actually it's maybe unhelpful to adopt the same strategy to tackle russia than say china
1: that's definitely the case so north korea is certainly not china and iran is is, is a different case altogether um and uh, and then there is Russia, which uh, obviously is, is uh, again, uh, a unique character. Uh, and what they have in common is that they, they use gray zone aggression and, and they're very skilled at using it. But Iran, for example, uses a lot of cyber aggression and is very good at it. But I, uh, it, it, and, and, uh, it also uses uh, disinformation to some extent, but not as much as Russia, whereas China focuses primarily on uh, or has been focusing uh, primarily on uh, subversive economic activities uh, and and that's something that that Russia would not be very good at That North and North Korea of course is is a uh, is a specialist in in cyber aggression for the sake of uh, getting money and that's something that, that China wouldn't need to do for example so in, in it does require different responses but what it does require in the first place is awareness that this is happening and recognition that that we should that we should increase our resilience to it and and i think um, that resilience is key jonathan because you can't predict what the country will do in the grey zone it can be things that we have seen but it can also be things that we haven't yet seen and so what what it does require is uh public awareness that this this is real and and it could return and it it, uh, it could disrupt our daily lives and and inconvenience our daily lives and uh and that everybody has a role in in, in trying to to help keep keep their country safe even if it is just trying to verify information before before you share it and even if it is if you're a business person looking uh, at your your prospective business partner to make sure that that uh, being acquired by uh by a company uh, would would not just be commercially uh, advantageous for you but uh, would also be, Uh, something that wouldn't harm the country. Now, uh, there has been a a phenomenal activity in the area of FDI legislation, so FDI screening of of potential acquirers of of Western companies that has been uh, one of the most extraordinary developments I've seen in the past couple of years, where virtually every European country has introduced or amended, it's uh, it's uh, FDI screening legislation to make sure that we we don't lose our best companies to uh, our rivals. But nevertheless, I think it behooves uh, business people to to be extra careful when when they look at who they do business with and indeed who who, who, uh, by whom their companies are acquired.
0: And the tools and technologies and quality of data has improved exponentially, hasn't it? Uh, You know, in the wake of things like Paradise Papers and so on, this is now quite a hot topic. Um, But, and that's one we've covered in a couple of videos on the channel. Now, I definitely wanna come back to this idea of resilience because you have state-led resilience, you have institutions, but you also have individuals, and it'd be good to unpack that. Before we do, however, it would be good to look at the economics of uh, grey zone warfare, because clearly it comes at a cost, and that can be quite a high cost. But could you put it in context, if you compare it to the cost of propaganda, the cost of disinformation, the cost of actual military campaigns, You know how does it stack up in terms of efficiency versus the results it can achieve?
1: So the, the great thing for aggressors or perpetrators... Uh, of gray zone aggression is that it's really cheap. So you can unleash disinformation. Uh, you don't even have to do it in any sort of coordinated fashion really I mean you can you can try various things and and they may take off and they may may not take off but it's not very expensive to put falsehoods on the internet and unfortunately we as human beings are somehow wired in a in a very unhelpful way that, that we look for scandalous content and that's what we share and of course that's that's what what those um wanting to to harm our societies through disinformation that's what they put out there whereas if if i put something very sensible on on social media it's uh, it's uh, boring because it's sensible so people don't share it and uh, and that is unfortunately uh, that makes it really easy to spread falsehoods and and, uh, disinformation and uh, grow malign influence campaigns and uh, I don't need to remind you, Jonathan. That that makes it, the fact that we have social media just makes it so easy compared to the old days of of, uh, of traditional media, which, by the way, had uh, copy editors and fact checkers and so forth. So that was yeah, falsehoods or inaccuracies were printed by fairly irregularly. And now, of course, we have social media where there are no copy editors, famously no, no copy editors or fact checkers. So uh, that's where we are. And by the way, the 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 fact-checking that, that uh, the social media platforms have introduced is still only very rudimentary. Um, so it, it's very cheap. <laughs> and, uh, and, and unfortunately, uh, we ordinary citizens help the, the the perpetrator by sharing uh, sharing content because it's scandalous because it's juicy because it's fascinating uh, without checking it And I think Jonathan, this is one of the challenges that we have that we as ordinary citizens within our Western societies are essentially helping other countries harm our own countries because we are so careless in what we share and and sometimes we we sort of create not sort of we do create, uh, the harm ourselves, and the sixth of January attack on on the on the capital was was an example of that. People have been trying to find whether it was established whether it was a, a Russian campaign, and they haven't re- be really been able to to uh, to ascertain that that was the case. And and uh, yes, there may have been some Russian involvement but americans ordinary Mar- americans did the bulk of the work because they willingly shared inaccurate information uh, whether they knew or didn't know that it wasn't accurate doesn't matter they should it, that information should have been um, Verified before anybody shared it, but yet people kept sharing it and caused uh, enormous harm to that country by uh, by egging one another on to the the point that that they stormed the capital, it it really is extraordinary and. uh, By the way, if I may add one thing about uh, Russian uh, disinformation campaigns and, and malign influence campaigns in the US in particular there's been a lot of discussion about the the Russian efforts to. Uh, to interfere with the 2016 election campaign when Donald Trump eventually won, and, and there was cyber, there was cyber interference, and was also uh, a, a malign influence component. Um, and and people have been trying to establish, yeah, did it did it change the outcome in any way? But I think it actually doesn't matter whether that. Uh, Influence campaign uh, or those campaigns or those interference attempts changed the the number of votes. What does matter is that it changed people's perception about the the, the sanctity of of, of uh, elections in the US. It gave people the uh, impression that uh, American elections are not safe. Well, if you, if you if you uh, and cannot be trusted because there's interference. So if if that is your approach as a citizen, that uh, a democratic uh, institution, namely the the legislature is is not the result of the vote of the people. then you're not going to to respect it. So you have these these um growing or you have these doubts that that the election outcome actually represents the will of the people that is so dangerous.
0: And this comes on to the solution, or as I think of it, the sort of antibodies that you need to create to fight off these sort of foreign germs, trying to attack your your body politic. Um, Some of those germs just make you a little bit ill, so they're trying to kill you. Um, If we look at traditional institutions like the media, like those that have been doing fact checking and so on, They are not able to react to propaganda in the timescale that works on social media, are they? I mean, simply in getting a response out, validating whether something's true or not, validating, validating the facts. So, for instance, on the Kohovka Dam incident, appalling media coverage because we don't know. Well, actually we can have a damn good guess at it. um, And we don't have to sit on the fence. But in social media, it's even worse. It's sort of hyper, hyper real time. That would suggest that open societies with a regulated media are at a real disadvantage compared to, um, you know, propagandists who are actually given free reign within these same platforms to say and do what they want. This is where the distributed response comes in. And of course, I'm going to drop the NAFO word here. Um, Not wearing my NAFO T-shirt at the moment, but I should have put that on for today. Um, This is an extraordinary phenomenon, isn't it? That says, okay, well, let's let's not attempt to do fact-checking. Let's not attempt. Let's go in with memes, insults. Let's have a completely decentralized structure here with a nominal identity, and a sort of rough set of rules, but no one is bound by them. And despite the sort of propaganda, no one is paid by the CIA. We're not all sitting in a warehouse in Langley. Um, We don't have huge expense accounts, which is unfortunate because I'd love to have a big CIA expense account. But what is your view on this sort of distributed effort, this organic response um, and its ability to tackle disinformation?
1: Well, it's laudable that that so many people in so many countries are trying to do their part to to fight Rus- Russian disinformation, and and um, I think anything we can do as ordinary citizens to to help our societies and and indeed to help Ukraine is is absolutely uh, uh, valuable and laudable, and and um, there is nothing about it uh, to, uh, to 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 uh, there's nothing. Uh, Criticism worthy about it. Um, I do wonder, though, whether in this case it, it contributes to the 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 deterioration of the quality of the public discourse um, because it's uh, it sort of plays a, s- a similar game uh, to to the to, to the Russians. Whereas I would argue we we should. We should uh, maintain the high ground and, and let them operate in the gutter, um, and and I think that's that's where I worry that it, it leads to this denigration of, of 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 the public of of the public discourse, public debate. Um, but then again, how can you criticize anybody for trying to to fight uh, Russian disinformation? And, and if I may, add just one note on 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 uh, on uh, that front. Uh, the disinformation reporters out there who who uh, work full time to set the record straight that must be the world's most depressing job because there is just endless information for them to correct and they do great work but inevitably the circulation of their rebuttals or whatever the disinformation is or or uh, inaccuracy and falsehood uh, whatever whatever they put out will get less circulation than the original incorrect content so maybe maybe uh joining the russians in the ghetto is is uh, unavoidable
0: and i would say as well that the russian memes because they're coming from a place of lies typically and you know unimaginable cruelty um and coercion tend not to be very funny they tend to be rather sort of crude Um, whereas the NAFO memes can also be very crude, but they can be extremely funny sometimes. And I happen to believe that, you know, humour comes from a place of truth. Um, It's not funny if it doesn't have a kernel of truth behind it. So I think that that perhaps is one of the advantages, although in a decentralised organisation, it's not even an organisation, in a decentralised movement, uh, you know, you will have some people at the fringes going off and and as you say, you know, right down in the gutter, saying fairly reprehensible things. Um, so it's 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 just part of the the, the risk of it. Um, I'm going to ask a rather sort of odd question here, I think perhaps, um, and that is, those countries that uh, really place a uh, huge emphasis on grey zone warfare and invest a lot of money into it. Um, yes, it's economic. But do they also lose something? Do they lose something in terms of the trust of the global community? Do they sacrifice some part of their identity when they engage in these weaponized lies? I'm thinking in particular, of course, but not exclusively, of, of Russia. And it seems to have burnt all its soft power that comes through music, literature, culture. It's burning up all of its assets to feed the lies and aggression. So what is the cost to the perpetrator of really going down this uh, grey zone rabbit hole?
1: This is uh, one of the fundamental aspects of grey zone aggression, that if you as a country decide that you want to pursue it, you take leave of your reputation. So, and this is what makes Russia so different uh, from the Soviet Union. The Soviet leaders wanted their countries to be seen as a respectable country, you know, one that was part of global forums of, of uh, Decision making and one that was taken seriously, and and so they would, even though they 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 engaged in some very nefarious activities, and and uh, even though they did invade Czechoslovakia and so forth, they wanted to be seen as respectable, and that's why, for example, they signed the Helsinki Accords, even though they desperately wanted not to. But how can you not? How I mean, How can you? How can you be? Uh, how can you be seen as not rep- as not respecting human rights? So they did sign, but. Russia today, the today's current uh, well, the current Russian leadership is so different. It's saying, we well, know, we don't care what you think about us. Uh, we'll we'll keep doing uh, our thing. and and yeah, if you if you if you think poorly of us, go ahead and that's what makes Russia so different. And that's what uh, puts Russia in the company of North Korea, Iran. Uh, Venezuela, Syria, countries like that. um uh, And indeed, also Belarus. Uh, uh, President Lukashenko seems to have made the decision that he's uh, not going to aspire to be part of any fine uh, gatherings of global leaders anymore. He will go down this route. Uh, and indeed, Xi Jinping seems to have decided to go down this route. And that is. Uh, um, a fundamental choice these leaders and and the leadership wider leadership in these countries have made and once you've made it you have uh, all gray zone doors open to you you can do whatever you like because you don't care about your reputation anymore and on top of that uh, the west or the global community can uh, it loses its power to try to appeal to to your sense of of um um propriety and and dignity responsibility uh civic mindedness and so forth because uh you don't care about it so the west can't say to russia well you know stop this uh these um this disinformation constant disinformation campaigns because it's it's not really uh something a respectable country does well it doesn't work if russia no longer desires to be a respectable country so that is uh it really is a fundamental choice that these countries have made and now uh, having made it, they have so many opportunities available to them to experiment, to use existing grey zone techniques, but also to experiment with new ones and that's what we have seen uh, Belarus do, for example, with the, the um, aviation, act of aviation piracy when it essentially um, forced uh, a, a commercial flight flying uh, from one EU city to another EU city to uh, um, diverse to uh, Belarus and forced it to land there, and, and we all know what happened, they, the Belarusians arrested a, 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 an opposition leading journalist, uh, and then also, for example, the um, weaponization of migration that Belarus has been engaging in, that's not something a respectable country would do, but if you don't desire to be a respectable country, nobody can appeal to you to come to your senses.
0: Now, if we come back to the cost-benefit analysis, uh, we've we've established that grey zone aggression is uh, economic. Uh, you can potentially leverage it to um, exert more influence and co- control than perhaps your economy would allow. And we know this is traditional over hundreds of years that Russia tries to project power far beyond its means, far beyond its economic power, Um, and often it will threaten and coerce countries that are far far bigger and if you look at the eu economically it's you know 10 20 times in terms of the purchase power even before you add the us canada and so on into the equation but still it manages to leverage sort of threat and coercion effectively to change the behaviors of the western alliance we think about the delayed Uh, supply of arms, the non-supply of attackums, F-16s, you know, this stuff unfortunately does seem to work. But Russia, China and other countries wouldn't do it unless there was some quantifiable benefit. You know, I I still cling to the view that Russia is heading towards madness, but they're not totally mad. So there must be some kind of benefit. Um, What typically are those benefits? Is it in terms of land, uh, hydrocarbons, mineral rights, trade routes? What What are the typical reasons that a country would engage in grey zone aggression?
1: If we think about what matters to a country today compared to what mattered to a country 200 years ago, uh, 200 years ago, the world was, was agriculture-based. So in order to gain power and prominence a country needed more land so that it could engage in more agriculture today obviously we do agriculture very efficiently with and we live in a globalized economy where we can uh, trade goods back and forth, including. including agricultural goods. So what matters today is not so much having more land, and that's what makes Russia's invasion of Ukraine such an aberration, and it clearly has to do with uh, Putin's abs- obsession with, with Ukraine rather than any sort of logical reasons why Russia should need to to uh, to have Ukraine uh, and disharmony within those countries. Um, because then those countries have to try to uh, address that, uh, and and they lose... They lose, um, uh, they lose their ability to focus on other things and it becomes a country becomes sort of wrapped up in itself and that's what we've seen for example with this uh, most recent um, uh, disinformation campaign that was waged not by uh, Russia primarily well not just by Russia but also by Russia uh, against Sweden over the the Quran burnings or the Quran burning in in June a uh, really an extraordinary case an Iraqi refugee burned a Quran uh, and uh, straight away immediately uh, a massive disinformation campaign was launched uh, from Arabic language accounts and Russian language accounts against Sweden with uh, with disinformation about Swedish legislation about uh, essentially alleging that the Swedish government permits a uh, Quran burnings when in fact that's not how Sweden operates it's it's a it's a uh, it's a procedural matter dealt with by the local police and there is no such thing as as a Quran burning ban that you could that you could uh, that the local police could could uh, insert so that disinformation information campaign took off very quickly and was clearly coordinated and and then it was established that that uh, the the Iraqi citizen who had burnt the Quran uh, had been uh, he's not just uh, any old refugee in Sweden he uh, is uh, the uh, he was the leader of a of a, a militia in Iraq that had strong links to Iran so all of that will need to be established what what exactly happened there and and who exactly was behind it but what it did lead to and what is clear Jonathan is that uh, it caused Sweden, uh, a, a massive it caused massive harm to Sweden, and the government then had to attend to all these uh, international complaints about it, uh, domestic unhappiness uh, that this was happening, and so forth. And that meant that that Sweden was weakened because it it, it was consumed by this artificial crisis. And and that's something that that you can easily do to a, a liberal democracy and open society because it's so easy to to uh, reach into it and and uh, to um, to exploit its openness. And, and I think that is really the, the primary, one of the primary goals, uh, ways in which gray zone aggression uh, can be used and is being used uh, as a geopolitical tool. Then uh, it can also be used when we look at uh, at uh, subversive economic practices, it can be used to uh, to strengthen uh, the perpetrator or the, the aggressor. Um, so when we look at uh, IP theft, intellectual property theft, you can say, well, it happens all the time, and it's just the way businesses operate. They steal from one another, but when it's a concerted campaign by one country, um, which it has been uh, in the case of uh, which has been the case uh, with China now for many many years, it means that China is uh, taking Western companies' uh, intellectual properties, commercial secrets. Um, uh, either the the Chinese state through various intelligence uh, agencies and intelligence agents or uh, Chinese companies and using it for themselves, which means that China can accelerate its its, uh, transformation to a global um, high technology manufacturing superpower uh, off the back of Western companies. That strengthens China in this uh, race for for global power and weakens uh, Western countries.
0: Well, we'll come to AI in a minute because that's going to be a crucial front line of this race. Possibly Russia will be dropping out before this one really kicks off. Um, But before we get to that, I just wanted to ask about this concept of the global economy because the assumption behind the global economy is that you have a set of rules and that people more or less play by those rules and that you're working with people who are intent on partnership, not on unfair competition not on diminishing you at the same time as they grow uh, in their own power and strength. That order is not just falling apart, is it, because of uh, you know popular protest. It's also falling apart because constituent parts in that globalized system, like Russia, in terms of hydrocarbons, energy, minerals, metals, and so on, and China as the key manufacturing player, they're moving more towards this personal autocracy model which is becoming ever more antagonistic and aggressive. To an extent, how can you have a globalized system if you're really not pl- playing by the same rules uh, as 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 key components in that system?
1: That is in, indeed the challenge. And and the assumption that the West made when when the Cold War ended and and, and indeed when China started opening up in, in the 80s was that. Uh, if countries introduce market economies, eventually they'll introduce uh, democracy as well because these things go hand in hand because they've gone hand in hand in our countries. And indeed they did go hand in hand in in uh, most of the former Warsaw Pact countries. We have, we have in, in, uh, in virtually every single one of those countries we have pretty well-functioning democracy today uh, with, with variations uh, and we have market economies. Uh, and so the assumption was that that would always be the case, so we saw how democracy maybe wasn't perfect in Russia, but they did have market economies, so we thought, and you know this better than anybody Jonathan, we thought that that that's going to lead to them becoming more like us in, in, in setting up a liberal democracy and we even hoped that that would be the case in China, uh, for some time, it looked like that was uh, the, the path China was on it was becoming more and more liberal. Um, and in, it was. These countries were mostly playing by the rules. Uh, Russia and China. Yes, uh, there were concerns about uh, low level of uh, low levels of commercial crime in Russia and corruption and uh, corruption and so forth. And in China, of course, there was constant concern about IP loss and the fact that Western companies were forced to relinquish IP to Chinese competitors, and that always bothered them. Um, he bothered them that that uh that there was IP theft as well, but uh, by and large, things seem to work. And we sort of, the West sort of thought, well, uh, once China joins uh, the World Trade Organization, then uh, it will have to uh, obey by the WTO rules and then we will get better. It never did get better, but it was sort of manageable. But uh, it was only manageable because China was a weaker economy and uh, the companies, China's companies were not as sophisticated as Western companies. So there was a, a, a big gap between between the Chinese companies and the Western companies. And so they could afford to lose some more IP, whether through theft or, or, or government imposed, uh, government imposed um, agreements. Uh, but now Chinese companies are pretty much, uh, are, are approaching the level of sophistication of Western companies. And now uh, the fact that, that uh, ip loss is happening uh, ip loss from western companies to chinese companies is is all of a sudden that's not so manageable anymore because the, the 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 margin between them is too small for western companies to be able to afford this sort of loss and and um as a result, I think we have reached a pivotal moment when, where Western companies, in addition to governments, are saying uh, it doesn't work anymore because this rules based international order that, that uh, was thought up after the end of the Cold War, it's really not working. Uh, everybody has to follow the rules to a larger extent, to a more significant extent than is the case today. And if, uh, uh, if China in particular keeps being so cavalier about the rules, China, which is, uh, uh, the world second world' second largest economy. then it it's just not going to work, and I think
0: this is this is probably going to be the last question I could. Uh, I, I I got a thousand more questions. I could fire at you. but let's um let's turn to AI on this one. and let's let's move beyond Russia because it tends to be the main focus. But at some point, at least I assume it will be defeated and um, and go and lick its wounds uh, before it sort of, you know, starts the next round of aggression. Um, AI, however, is a different um, factor. This could exponentially increase the amount of disinformation uh, and activity within the grey zone. Um, at the same time, we haven't necessarily developed adequate tools and derisect culture to a political culture or social culture either to actually fight it off. How concerned are you about the impact of malicious AI usage?
1: I'm very concerned and it's it's already beginning to happen. So uh, very recently, just a few days ago, as we speak, um, there was a, a doctored deep fake image of Rishi Sunak uh, going around and a Labour MP uh, retweeted this image a uh, uh, very unflattering and and doctored, uh, AI doctored uh, image of Rishi Sunak. And then somebody, a lot of people actually pointed out that it was a deep fake. And this Labour MP said, well, how was I supposed to know? And this is exactly the problem. If, if not even members of parliament know how to verify content, including AI-generated content, How, uh, how is the rest of society supposed to know? I'm not saying uh, every member of parliament has to be a disinformation expert, but being able to verify content, including the AI-generated content and AI-aided content that is now appeared, that should be the minimum basis on which we operate in, in, in this global town square where we share information. And so I think, uh, Jonathan, if I had my way, public libraries everywhere would offer information literacy courses because they exist everywhere in most towns and 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 certainly in in uh, in cities. And librarians are trusted. Uh, it's it's a place where that you can easily find uh, in your neighborhood or in your town. And and uh, and uh, librarians are always thirsty for knowledge. They could become the teachers of. Uh, of the rest of of uh, of the population in our countries, and um, I think if we had information literacy courses in our public libraries, we I'm not saying people it should, it should be a mandatory uh, it should be mandatory attendance, but if we had them. Um, people could attend them and get some sort of information literacy certificate upon completing them and i think that would be very useful in the market in, in the labor market because no employer will want an employee who doesn't know Uh, how to verify information that is absolutely lethal for a company being being uh, operated by people like that so i think there's an opportunity here for information literacy and without it we we just uh, we just face absolute information anarchy uh, because nobody will know what information to trust
0: and it's interesting you mentioned that i mean one of my very early speakers on the channel is a uh, an incredibly inspiring uh, lady called Valeria Kaftun who runs a uh, organization called Filter and that's doing exactly you know what you've described there mass media literacy training constantly updated for a whole range of different demographics and I just sort of put this idea out there because working in marketing and uh, and the media which is my day job the prospect of what this technology will bring is terrifying you've described a scenario where you have image doctored of rishi sunak that is still a one to many equation because you've produced one asset and you've put it out there and you've convinced a few people very soon these systems will be able to analyze you individually and what you are receptive to and it will be able to create a deep fake for Every single person it's trying to target, it can create a, a million defakes with with different uh, narratives. It's become far more pernicious and, and far more difficult to fight.
1: Yes, it is really scary, and and this. Uh, demonstrates once again that that we all have a role to play in keeping our societies safe. It's not just the, the 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 military. The military can do nothing about disinformation, uh, and it's not just the, the the whole government either. And it's not just uh news media or disinformation reporters. Reporters. It really is everybody. And and I think uh, we're all guilty as charged of having shared content. content, content before verifying it. And, and and I know for a fact that people say, well, you know, what doesn't matter if I share it, lots of other people share it too. So, you know, and I'm just a, a nobody. Well, if everybody thinks like that, nothing will change. And the, this, the, the problem will just get worse. We all have a responsibility to keep the information environment, that global town hall safe and, and as fact-based as possible.
0: Well, Elizabeth, it's been a tremendous pleasure speaking to you and hugely insightful. I've got a million, billion questions to fire at you, but I think we'll have to save that for future conversations. Thank you so much. I know your time is precious and I hugely appreciate you coming onto the channel.
1: Well, thank you for having me and congratulations on having established such such a successful channel addressing such important subjects. Uh, So uh, long may it continue.